The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 143 Assyria taunts the God of Israel. Taken into slavery by Assyria, the northern ten tribes of Israel were gone from their land for good. The Samaritans, a Babylonian people, took their place in the land north of Judah. Yet under the righteous rule of King Hezekiah, Judah flourished and remained free from Assyrian captivity. The early reign of King Hezekiah was marked by overflowing prosperity. God blessed the nation with tremendously productive harvests as well as freedom from war. Because of the people's obedience to his laws of worship and tithing, when they compared these conditions to the misery they had endured under King Ahaz, it was obvious to everyone in Judah that God was blessing the nation. One day, after looking over the vast stockpile of stores the people had brought to Jerusalem, Hezekiah began to ponder the yearly tribute paid to the Assyrians. His father Ahaz had agreed to pay the tribute to keep Judah autonomous. Hezekiah had continued making the payments without question, but now he wondered, is it right to use the increased wealth God gives us to pay a yearly tribute to the Assyrians? Surely God wouldn't bless us so much to make Assyria rich. No nation had managed to rebel against the mighty Assyrians and get away with it. But Judah wasn't a normal nation. It had God on its side. After much deliberation and prayer, Hezekiah decided to stop paying the tribute. God was pleased by the king's decision to trust him to protect the nation from Assyria. As the years went by and the coffers of Judah grew large, Hezekiah's relationship with God gradually weakened. He acknowledged God less and less for the blessings of the nation and failed to thank God for the privilege of ruling on David's throne as Hezekiah's strong, righteous leadership waned. The nation's righteousness also diminished. Aware of the nation's dangerous downward trend, God stopped sending rain in due season. But the people wouldn't repent. When these milder measures failed to get the people of Judah to change course, God sent the Assyrians to correct his people. On the way down to Judah, Assyria punished other eastern Mediterranean nations that had refused to pay tribute. Eventually, the Assyrian king Sennacherib made his way into Judah. Beginning in the lowlands to Jerusalem's west, his army ransacked the countryside. Farms were burned and livestock confiscated to feed the foreign soldiers. As the army pillaged through the land, Jewish farmers fled to the walled cities. Soon, the cities were also under attack. Those cities with stronger walls could withstand the Assyrian attack for some time. 
But once the massive wooden siege engines, constructed with Judean timber, broke through the walls, the cities were flooded with enemy soldiers. The Assyrians were harsh and cruel, killing anyone who didn't immediately surrender. The rest they took as captives. One by one, the walled cities fell to the rampaging army. Alarmed, Hezekiah realized this wasn't a small foray into Jewish territory. The Assyrians sought the total surrender of the Jewish nation. He hastened to prepare Jerusalem to withstand a siege. The king assembled his generals and high officials to see what plans they could put into action. What are your ideas to stop the Assyrian juggernaut and ensure it cannot capture this city? Hezekiah asked his war council. We could reinforce the wall, one replied. We could increase production of shields and arrows, said another. We could train the city folk to use those weapons which would increase the size of the army, suggested a third. Yes, yes, Hezekiah agreed, slightly frustrated. These ideas are what normal cities would do. Normal cities get overrun by the Assyrian army. What else can we do? Sennacherib would need a lot of water to sustain his horses and army said one of the Judean princes slowly. What if we stop the water of the Gihon Spring? That spring is the only natural water source within five miles of Jerusalem. If Sennacherib doesn't have access to water, how long could he survive? That's, that, that's crazy, one of the elders replied. What would we drink then? We would have to redirect the water by carving through the bedrock underneath the city. Then we could build a new reservoir inside the city walls, the prince replied. Now I know you are crazy, the disagreeing elder declared. We don't have time for your foolish ideas. Silence, commanded the king. He looked over at the prince with the idea. Is it possible? Yes, it is possible, the prince replied. E even if it were possible, we would never be able to do it in time, spoke out the dissenter. Sennacherib is on our doorstep, and you are talking about digging through solid rock for at least a thousand feet? Actually, it would need to be closer to 1,700 feet, the prince responded. See, this idea is preposterous. King Hezekiah, why are we even listening to this man? Unhindered, the prince continued to lay out his case. If we had two teams working from both ends of the tunnel, we could cut the needed time in half. If we worked around the clock, we could get it done before the Assyrians arrived. King Hezekiah sat in silence for several moments. I've heard enough, he said at last. He looked at the prince. Start this project immediately. Use all the resources that you need. Hezekiah withdrew from the meeting and the massive waterworks project got underway. The best engineers were gathered to draw up plans. Skilled quarriers were assembled and divided into teams. The engineers needed to figure out how the teams could carve out the tunnel from separate ends and somehow meet in the middle. 
They also had to ensure that the water would be able to flow down the tunnel so that it did not pressure the old exit point of the Gihon Spring that they had covered. Day after day, night after night, the men labored to carve out the tunnel. Under the guidance of expert engineers, the men constantly had their course redirected to ensure the two teams would meet. The tunnel was so narrow that only one man could swing an axe at a time. Others shoveled the rock and stones away and out of the tunnel. Weary from work, uncertain whether it was night or day, the workers struggled to maintain concentration and sustain their energy. One day, a faint sound began reverberating in their ears, different from all the construction noise they had grown accustomed to. I think my hearing is going bad, one worker said. I'm getting this odd pinging in my ears. Actually, I hear it too, commented another. The work momentarily stopped as all the men focused their attention on the strange, hollow clanging. Suddenly, they realized what they were hearing. It's the other team, one shouted. We're almost through. The whole team let out a mighty cheer. Within moments, they heard a response from the other team, muffled by what must have been only a few remaining feet of stone separating them. Overjoyed that the 1,700-foot tunnel was almost complete, the team sped up, carving up the bedrock ferociously in 15-minute shifts before the men swapped places, allowing fresh muscles to attack the dividing rock. The last moment of this epic engineering marvel was captured in a carving found inside the tunnel in Jerusalem. At the meeting point, the inscription reads, and this was the way in which it was cut through. And while there was still three cubics to be cut through, there was heard the voice of a man calling to his fellows. For there was an overlap in the rock, on the right side and on the left. And when the tunnel was driven through, the quarrymen hewed the rock, each man toward his fellow, axe against axe and the water flowed from the spring toward the reservoir for 1,200 cubits, and the height of the rock above the heads of the quarrymen was 100 cubits. Today, this tunnel is known as Hezekiah's Tunnel, named after the man who ordered its creation when the city was about to be encompassed by the Assyrian army. Water still flows from the Gihon Spring through the tunnel as it did 2,700 years ago. siege preparations were being made in Jerusalem. Hezekiah received word that even more of Judah's cities had fallen. The Assyrian force now concentrated its efforts on the lowland city of Lachish. This city was a large regional center about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It was nestled high on a hill, making it difficult for an incoming army to take. But Sennacherib had little trouble so powerful was his army, and so determined was he to punish the Jews for refusing to continue paying tribute. If they can conquer Lachish, Hezekiah thought, it won't be long before they will be on Jerusalem's doorstep. It just might be that I've been too stubborn in not paying the Assyrians. Many of my countrymen have fallen. Is this all my fault? Filled with doubts, the king decided to act. 
he sent a letter to the Assyrian army at Lachish, commanding the messenger to deliver it personally to King Sennacherib. Eventually, the scroll with Hezekiah's seal was opened and read before the great Assyrian king. It seems I have been a little foolish in refusing to send tribute to you, Sennacherib's scribe read out in Aramaic. But I want you to know that Judah has no desire to continue this warfare with you. Let me know how much I owe you, and I will see that you get it. Hezekiah's short message put an arrogant smile on Sennacherib's face. Reply to him, he instructed the scribe. Make the message short. Simply tell him how much he owes us. Three hundred talents of silver and thirty talents of gold. But don't promise anything about our army leaving. When Hezekiah received Sennacherib's response, he was shocked by the amount of gold and silver required to pay for the Assyrian army's departure. The preparations for the siege of Jerusalem had eaten up much of the reserves. Even all the gold and silver in the house of God wouldn't be enough to pay off such a massive debt. The only way to come up with the tribute would be to strip the temple itself of its gold and silver. Hezekiah's lapse in faith had led to this costly predicament. Instead of trusting God as he had instructed his own people, he used human reasoning to address the problem. Hezekiah tried to gather the funds discreetly, but soon everyone found out. The temple was the grandest building in Judah, possibly even the world. Years earlier, Hezekiah himself had beautified it, but now, he instructed his servants to remove all the gold and silver from its storerooms. Then the gold from the temple doors was removed, as well as the gold overlaying the large pillars. All the gold in the temple was stripped and melted down. Even though Hezekiah didn't want to do it, he reasoned that it was better to give up the gold and live than to go into captivity and lose the gold as well. Plus. It was under my rule that all this gold and silver was added to the temple anyway. He reasoned, in reality, it was no longer his gold to give. The gold in God's temple belonged to God. By taking from the temple, Hezekiah stole from God to pay off the Assyrians, and God was not pleased. Nevertheless, Hezekiah scraped together the required gold and silver and sent it to the Assyrian king. In addition, he sent some of his famed musicians and singers, as well as a host of other priceless gifts of exotic nature. The taunting Assyrians. Hezekiah stayed inside his palace, anxiously awaiting word that the Assyrian army was moving out of Judah. Left to his thoughts, King Hezekiah had a nagging feeling that he had made a mistake by paying the tribute. He hadn't even sought out the counsel of the prophet Isaiah before taking this course, but it was already done. He would have to live with the consequences. From his rooms, King Hezekiah heard shouting through the palace halls. Then there was a knock at his door. Enter, he said, rising to his feet. A messenger entered. An army is approaching Jerusalem under the flag of Assyria. What are we to do? Blow the trumpet, close the gates, and set all the archers on the wall, Hezekiah responded. We will see what they have to say first. The trumpet sounded, and the large gates of Jerusalem shut with a thud. 
While Jerusalem was prepared for a siege, Hezekiah hoped it wouldn't come to that. Thousands of civilians and archers flocked to the massive wall to see the encroaching army. Fear filled their veins. For many, this was their first sighting of the mighty Assyrian army. Some distance from the wall, the army halted its advance. Three leading Assyrian figures came forward from the rest of the army. I am Tatan, commander of the Assyrian army. One barked. They were close enough that the people on the wall could hear as the richly dressed Assyrian shouted up at them. Where is your king, Hezekiah? I have a message for him from King Sennacherib. Immediately, a servant ran to the king, who had yet to leave his chamber. Assyria's general has a message for you, the messenger relayed. I know, I could hear the Assyrian's accent Hebrew bellowing from here, grumbled Hezekiah. If King Sennacherib will not speak to me, then I will not go down to speak to his servants. San Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah, my trusted servants, see what this party has to say, then report back. Just make sure that none of the people on the wall say a single thing to those Assyrians. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah served as Hezekiah's chief steward, scribe, and personal secretary. Eventually, the city gate groaned as it opened to allow the three men out to talk with Sennacherib's envoy. The men made sure they remained under the protection of their Judean archers on the city wall in case an attempt was made to take them. General Tartan, Rabshaka, Sennacherib's chief cupbearer and bodyguard, and another Assyrian attendant confronted the three Jews. We knew King Hezekiah would be too gutless to come and talk with us directly, said Rabshaka spitefully. Fine, you deliver this message to your king. Make sure he realizes this comes from Sennacherib, the mightiest king in the world. We will, Hezekiah's representative said quietly. What is King Hezekiah thinking that makes him so confident to not give in to Assyria? Who are you counting on to help you? If you think Egypt will come and save you, think again. If you lean on Egypt, it will be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Perhaps you think you're trusting in your God to deliver you. <laughs> but didn't Hezekiah insult your God by destroying all altars throughout Judah, saying people could only worship in Jerusalem? The Assyrians clearly had unsettlingly good intelligence about what had been happening in the kingdom of Judah. Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah grew uneasy as his voice grew louder and louder. How about we make a deal? Rabshaka jested. We'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find that many men to ride them. You've got such a small army. You would have no chance of bettering even the smallest contention of our forces. You absolutely have no chance! The irate general continued, practically shouting in their faces now. If you think your God will save you, we have a message from your God. He is the one who told us to come and attack your land to destroy you! Glancing back at the city wall, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah realized that the people could hear everything Rabshakeh was saying. The look of fear on their faces testified to that fact. They hurried to interrupt Rabshakeh, saying, 
Would you please not speak in Hebrew? We are fluent in Aramaic. Please speak in that language so that the people on the wall do not understand you. The Jew's request only enraged Rabshakeh further. You think my master sent this message only to you and your master? <laughs> he didn't. He wants all the people to hear it. He shouted. For when you put this city under siege, they will be so hungry and thirsty that they will eat their own dung and drink their own urine. Stepping away from the Jewish envoy, Rabshakeh faced the wall directly and looked up, raising his hand to the people. Listen up, all you inhabitants of Jerusalem! The king of Assyria has a message for you, too! Don't let Hezekiah deceive you! He will never be able to rescue you from my power! Don't let him fool you into believing God will protect you! Accept my king's terms! Make peace with him! Open the gates and come out! Then each of you can continue eating from your own grapevines and fig tree and drinking from your own well. Then Sennacherib will take you into another land, but not as captives. There you will eat bread and honey and olives. There you will drink wine. This is the only way you will survive. Hezekiah lies when he says your God would rescue you. Have the gods of any other nation been able to rescue it from the hands of Sennacherib? No! And your God will be the same! What makes you think Jerusalem will be any different? Those standing on the wall were filled with dread at Rabshakeh's words, but they held true to Hezekiah's command and didn't say a single thing in response to the Assyrian emissary. Still, they quaked to think about how soon the Assyrian army would start attacking them. After the exchange, Eliakim, Joah, and Shebna hastened back into the city, the doors closing behind them. Quickly, they made their way back up to the palace to relay the message to the king. Hezekiah was still in his room anguishing over his decisions and slowly realizing how much more faith he should have exhibited. While he had told the people that God would protect the city, some of his own actions, such as paying the tribute, revealed that he had not relied on God for protection. Instead, he had tried to figure out how to protect the nation on his own. Now that part of the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem, he knew God's deliverance was Judah's only hope. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story, find it under the Resources tab at pcg.church.